Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. John Atkinson, Swimming Canada's high-performance director and national coach, join me to discuss the team's success so far at the Tokyo Olympics. American gymnastics superstar Simone Biles withdrew from competition due to mental health reasons Wednesday. What kind of toll has the pandemic had on athletes' mental health? And has COVID-19 changed our attitudes towards coughs and sniffles at work? What should employers do to eliminate a return to presenteeism? in the post-pandemic workplace. We answer that and a whole lot more now on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Five years after becoming Canada's youngest Olympic champion at the age of 16, the now 21-year-old Penny Alexiak is the country's most decorated summer Olympian. An absolutely outstanding story. She won a bronze in the women's 200-meter freestyle for her sixth career medal, pulling even with speed skater Cindy Klassen and cyclist and speed skater Clara Hughes. And Penny's not done yet. No, she's going to be back in the pool to defend her title in the 100-meter freestyle, racing in the semifinals in that event at 9.35 p.m. our time tonight. The final is Thursday night. Kyla Sanchez also in the semis of that event. The overall success of Canada's Olympic swim team thus far in Tokyo has been absolutely remarkable. The team has won four of Canada's nine medals at the Games. And oh, by the way, those nine medals won all by Canadian women. Come on, guys, step up to the plate. (laughs) Joining us from Tokyo is John Atkinson. He is Swimming Canada's High Performance Director and National Coach. John, thank you very much for taking some time to join us today. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Great to be speaking with you. Uh, I know you're really good because your team is uh, has been absolutely superb in Tokyo. What has it been like? It's been fantastic. I mean, coming through uh, the the pandemic and we, we had a late trials in, in Toronto. We prepared really well in Vancouver and then flew into Tokyo Direct and came into the village. And uh, the, the team have been preparing really, really well, very professional, very focused, very calm. And uh, that's translating itself through into the performances that they've had so far. Yeah, very successful as well. A gold medal for Maggie McNeil, two silver for the women's 4 by 100 relay team. Kylie Moss uh, winning in the, or getting a, a, a silver in the 100-meter backstroke, a bronze for Penny Alexiak. Uh, in the 200-meter freestyle. Maybe we'll start with Penny. Uh, you know, six medals overall. She's not done yet. What more can you say about Penny Alexiak? Well, what more can we say? Uh, most decorated summer Olympian, based on what she's done so far for Canada ever. And she qualified through to the semifinals of the uh, 100 freestyle today. And then we've got relays coming up as well. So there's certainly more to come from Penny, and she's doing a sensational job. How has she developed over the last five years? Because she exploded onto the scene in Rio, and now we're seeing her uh, maybe fine-tune her game. Is that an accurate statement? I think it's... Uh, I think it's. She certainly burst onto the scene in Rio. Uh, she, she was sensational down there. And then we had a World Champs Com Games uh, where she probably didn't hit the standards that she would like to do. And then in uh, Grand View at the World Championships in 2019, was instrumental in our relays. And then January, we provisionally nominated her in the 200 freestyle, and then she swam to her best at the trial. So 
she's really come into her own. She she's obviously swimming with confidence, and that's great to see when you have athletes who can swim with confidence. And she's doing a great job. How did the early success of the team, uh, you guys won the silver, as I mentioned, in the 4 by 100 relay, what did that early success, that early medal do for the team? Well, it's interesting. In Rio, we won bronze, and we upgraded that to silver here in Tokyo. And we had five women who are Olympic medalists because of that swim. So when you have a team of 24 swimmers, and on the first day of finals, uh, they win a medal, and uh, the four in the final, plus Taylor Rook that contributed to the preliminary swim, also is an Olympic medalist. That that gets the team off to a great start with five women who have won an Olympic medal on day one of the Olympic Games. And then we roll from there, and we keep doing what we do, and that's prepare and, and be ready for the next session. We're chatting with John Atkinson. He's the High Performance Director of Swimming Canada here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Winning medal is great. Winning a gold medal is maybe, uh, well, obviously it's the, it's the pinnacle of uh, that event. Maggie McNeil's gold medal performance was just absolutely dazzling. It certainly was. And, uh, you know, uh, Maggie came under the radar for the World Championships in 2019 when she won in, in, in Korea. And then it's an entirely different situation when you come in as the world champion into your first Olympic Games. And she did what was necessary in the heat and the semi-final. And then in the final, she, she was unbelievable on the second 50. So her return speed was half a second faster than anybody else in the final. And that, that put her in the position to get her hands on the wall first. And down from in London, her home club there with Andrew Craven, her coach that worked with her for many years. And it's great to see her have that success at the Olympic Games. You have a very young team as well. You know, Finley Knox swimming in, in her first Olympics. Uh, Kelsey Wog, Marcus Thormeyer in, in the pool. Um, uh, Summer McIntosh is 14. How has it all come together seemingly so fast in terms of the success and personal bests and, and you know, being so fast in the pool? Yeah, you're right. There are young athletes on here as well. And I'm, I'll not forget Brent Hayden, who's 37, but a great role model for other young people, such as Josh Leendo, who swam in that men's relay that, that plays four. And, you know, we, we run a team where we're all supportive of each other and supportive of what each individual needs to do in terms of specific preparation. So you may come in and watch a training session or how the team operates and it looks like everybody's doing different things and to a degree they are. But that's so that we can give everybody their own space to do what they need and then come together as a team to support each other and combine on the relay. So it's diverse. It's 14 to 37 years old. And it, it works well because we let people do what they need to do. Doesn't appear to be any big egos on the team either. And as a, as a coach, that's probably good to deal with, right? Hey, look, I, I think that every high-performance athlete have their own egos. They have their own desires, their own goals. And I think by taking the approach of letting people do what they need to do uh, is the right way. And we use some key words on the team, and we use the words focus, professional, calm, adaptable, no drama. 
And uh, this year we certainly added in through the pandemic resilience. And being resilient as you, you come through, it's a nine-day uh, competition, the swimming at the, the Olympics in the pool. And you have to be as good on day nine as you are on day one. And that's where we work on recovery and when they've raced, get some good food, nutrition, massage, cold tubs, so that they're ready to come back the very next morning or the same day and be better than they were in the previous session. Much has been made about no fans in attendance. Has that had any impact at all? It's interesting. I think everybody from previous games would have the, the you know, the parents or the um, family and friends or whatever it might be coming to support them. I think it is different, uh, but I think the Canadian athletes specifically, we, we were out of the pool longer than any other major nation in the world at the beginning of the pandemic, 133 days. We then able to get back in to train um, with the high-performance exemption that was in place in Ontario, which allowed athletes to train, and that was unbelievably important for our athletes to be able to do that. We didn't have a lot of competition where we'd normally race a little bit more, but therefore they trained well. They had to find more innovative ways in training to get to that performance with, in a training session, not even in a competition. And then when we ran the trials, we ran the trials at TPAS, fantastic legacy pool from the Pan Am Games in Toronto, and we didn't have any fans in the stands there. And our athletes are adaptable, and, and they rose to it, and were able to focus on what they needed to do. So whilst they're not here, they're in everybody's hearts and minds and supporting them. So they are here in, in spirit as opposed to in person. I think that's really important for the team. We're chatting with John Atkinson. He's the High Performance Director of Swimming Canada and uh, obviously Canada Swim Team having some great success at the Tokyo Olympics. Given all that has happened during the pandemic, which you just laid out, is the team's performance in Tokyo surprising or are you expecting what, what, we're, what we've been seeing? If I'm, if I'm completely honest with you, we, we weren't sure. Um, we managed to run a competition at TPAS uh, at the end of May and we called it the Take 5 Me. And it was called Take 5 because there was five attempts to run a competition, but we couldn't run it because of the pandemic. They swam well in that meet, and then they swam really well at the trials. So you come from the trials where there's been great performances with expectation, but you're still not quite sure because there's got to be this reliability part. Doing it once is good, but have they done it several times before they got here? And I guess the answer now, day four, day five, we've got to go till day nine. Right now, they're repeating the level of performance from the trials, and that's why they're being successful. And that's down to their own commitment, organization, and being able to get ready 15 sessions of swimming over nine days and keep it going now. I'm going to ask you one non-swimming question. It has made uh, headlines around the world, and that's American gymnast Simone Biles uh, withdrawing from competition to focus on her mental health. Has that reverberated throughout the Olympic Village, and have you spoken to some of the swimmers on your team about this? We've not specifically spoken to the swimmers. We, it's kind of been a, a breaking story today. Um, we're obviously very, very aware of the challenges that everybody has had over the last 16 months. Uh, we travel with two physicians on the team. Uh, we have our, our, our doctor to look after the, 
the physical health and how the athletes are doing. We also travel with a sports psychiatrist who works with the athletes on the team who, who need to work on the mental health side of, of their preparation. So we're very aware of that. We, we support our athletes by making sure that they have access to the both types of uh, physicians on the team. And, um, you know, it, it's sometimes decisions have to be made by athletes to get themselves into the space that they want to be in. And I think that it's a very brave decision. And uh, we, we certainly wish her all the best. And we, we know that she'll come back stronger after she's taken the break. And we wish you and uh, the swim team all the best as well. It's been a tremendous, uh, so far, tremendous Olympics for the swimming team. Uh, all the best, John. Congratulations thus far, and I'm sure there's more medals to come. Thanks for joining us today. That's great. Thank you very much. And thanks again to John Atkinson, High Performance Director and National Coach with Swimming Canada. It has been a remarkable start to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics for this swim team. The women have been absolutely fantastic. The men's team just uh, missing a podium in one of their events, finishing fourth. Um, you know, Summer McIntosh, just 14 years of age. You know, I'm looking at my two kids, 16 and 20, thinking, what have you done? Then again, what have I done? <laughs> 14 years old to be in an Olympics game is absolutely outstanding. And Penny Alexiak, talk about outstanding. Six medals already, well on her way, the way she's going, well on her way to be the most dominant Olympian in this country's history, summer or winter. An absolute fantastic story. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Explosive news at the Tokyo Games yesterday. Simone Biles will not defend her Olympic title after the American gymnastics superstar withdrew from Thursday's all-around competition to focus on her mental well-being. USA Gymnastics said in a statement yesterday that the 24-year-old is opting not to compete. The decision comes a day after Biles removed herself from the team final following that one rotation in the vault competition she felt that she just wasn't mentally right. Yeah, I say um, put mental health first because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to. So it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself because it shows how strong of a competitor and person that you really are rather than just battle through it. USA Gymnastics' Biles is going to be reevaluated before uh, deciding if she will participate in next week's individual events. The uh, story has really made headlines around the world. It has heightened the talk about mental health in the sports spectrum. Here to shed some more light on how important this discussion is, is Dr. Carla Edwards, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences with McMaster University, also the High Performance Mental Health Advisor for Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. And we say good morning or good evening in her case. She's in Tokyo, Dr. Carla Edwards. Dr. Edwards, how are you? Hi, Rick. I, I am really excited to be here. Thank you very much. But I have to apologize for my voice. I'm a little hoarse from all the cheering I'm doing this week. Uh, it's so exciting here and, and the Canadians are really dialed in. I, would, I was feeling the same as you on, uh, I guess it would have been Monday morning after Sunday night's uh, Maggie McNeil performance. That was unbelievable. So yeah, I've, I've been Horace, and as a, you know, a radio announcer, that's probably the last place you want to be, but uh, certainly understandable. Um, let's focus on this story. Your reaction to what you heard from Simone Biles yesterday and, and all the ripple effects that it's created now. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, mental health and sport is not something that's brand new. It's something that we we know that has been there for a long time and is part of the reason why I'm here. Thankfully, with Swimming Canada, um, some programs are really starting to embrace it and uh, you know, engage in the prevention and and maintenance of mental health for for the athletes and staff. I, I'm just really concerned about Simone. I really hope she's getting the support she needs to be able to you know put a full pause on the train that is the Olympics. Uh, once it gets started, is a is no small feat. And the fact that she has done that, I think, really underscores the uh, the profound impact that her mental health is having on her and and the need for her to, to do full stop and for her ability to do that I really commend her and um, and applaud her efforts for that without a doubt what a courageous um, you know move on her part you know this is in the middle of a competition in the biggest stage on the planet uh, we haven't really seen this kind of at least this high profile athlete at this stage of her career at the Olympic Games uh, in, amid a pandemic making this decision um, it, it's it's really opened up the floodgate floodgates really in terms of you know uh, listening to that kind of inner voice. Absolutely, and I think you know we could see this wave developing over the past few months when when Naomi Osaka really took a stand with the Grand Slams in tennis and and said you know I need to take a step back and and take care of my mental health and she took a lot of flack for that uh, at the time and and I think is still catching some of that. Uh, for Simone to do that, I think she she indicated in one of her um, interviews yesterday that she was inspired by Naomi's movement, and uh, she I think used that to be able to propel herself to be able to do the same. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, will there be some contagion? Uh, will there be more athletes who who decide to do this? Hard to say, uh, but again, it, it really shines a light on the impact of mental health, and I hope people are paying attention, and I hope that we're able to come away from this with some really great lessons to protect athletes of the future. Uh, Biles referred to having the twisties, saying, quote, they sawed a little bit in practice, having a little bit of the twisties, which is apparently like having the yips in golf or, or baseball when your body and mind aren't connecting. How hard is that to shake, and, and how does that happen? The twisties or the yips or a lot of different sports have their own little catchphrases for it. It can, it, it can likely come from a lot of different components. It could be fear, anxiety, doubt, and sometimes it's completely irrational. Uh, and it can have different outcomes in different sports. Obviously, you know, diving, they could splash a little bit more. In golf, they might miss a putt for a million dollars. Gymnastics can be quite dangerous. Obviously, if you lose disorientation in the twists and the flips in the air and you're using different apparatuses. So uh, certainly the outcomes are quite different. And you know, it may not make sense to a lot of people, you know, how can a basketball player miss a free throw that they're doing a million times in their lives or a gymnast miss, you know, a flip that she's done a, a tens of thousands of times in their lives. But, you know, for, for those of us who have never achieved those levels, it'll be hard for us to understand. But, but sometimes a very small thing, an element of, of doubt or pressure can take on a life of its own very quickly and a seed of doubt can grow into a field of uncertainty. So it's it's not uncommon. It's 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 quite commonly written about, and it's probably encountered by athletes in all different sports at all different levels. So how do you do? You need a complete reset. Is it a refocus? How how do you tackle that sort of thing? Yeah, a bit of both. I think you know part of it is really dissecting the cause and the origin, figuring out where it started. You know, is it rooted in seeing somebody else get injured, and therefore you kind of develop a fear of the same thing happening to yourself, or is it completely irrational and out of the blue? Or is it preceded by mountains of pressure where the world is waiting for you to, uh, you know, 
perform the dangerous Yurchenko double pike, which was loudly lauded before Simone even arrived here in Tokyo, that she was going to do this amazing uh, vault in her routine um, and, you know, double her metal haul from the previous time. So any of these things can really open a chink in the armor and create a crack. And again, it can grow from there. And, you know, for someone like Simone, who I would suspect knows herself very well, uh, if she's not feeling well enough to execute some of these very uh, tricky maneuvers, then, you know, a really good call for her to not do it. Our guest is Dr. Carla Edwards, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences with McMaster University and High Performance Mental Health Advisor for both Swing Canada and Cycling Canada. Joining us live from Tokyo, Japan, uh, you're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. Um, we can talk about caring for our mental health, and I know that discussion has been elevated in, in, in the past few years. Biles is doing so on the world's biggest stage. What does that say about her and and where we are in terms of paying atten- more attention to this? I think she's incredibly brave. Uh, she's catching a lot of flack for it, and a lot of people are saying she's actually the opposite, that she's quite weak and mentally uh, weak. Uh, I think she's quite the opposite. But the challenge is, I mean, these athletes go from you know, being on the Times Square big screen equivalent of glamour and kind of being televised across the world to then going under the microscope when they demonstrate anything that uh, might not be in line with what the world expects. So, which isn't really any better because then they become really criticized and dissected for, you know, trying to take care of themselves. So they get into a situation where they really can't win when they're trying to get ahead with their own health. I'm glad you brought up that, uh, you know, those, those statements or those sentiments or thoughts from critics. I actually wrote something very similar in my online commentary today at globalnews.ca. Uh, you know, critics might have the urge to call Bile soft, uh, maybe the face of a new generation of athletes who just can't mm-hmm. handle the pressure in the big moment. I don't subscribe to that process. What do you say to those people? Because obviously they're not, I would, I would guess, they're not elite athletes and, and are not in her shoes. Not at all. And and I think that's, that's why they can try to get away with saying it. In fact, I think, you know, these athletes that are coming forward with their stories and disclosing their challenges um, are quite strong. And, you know, we we may look at the wave and say, well, is it this new era of athletes? Is it the millennials? Are they weaker or different than athletes in the past? I really don't think so. I think there was just no place for discussion about this in the past. Uh, You know, we could go back 10 years and not find an athlete talking about their mental health struggles, but I'm certain that it was happening. It just wasn't safe to talk about, you know, there's a huge risk of stigma, rejection, deselection, discrimination, harassment, and other sport related repercussions, uh, certainly more prominent in the past. But uh, I think those who are coming up in the ranks who are not quite as established as Simone and Naomi may still be at risk of uh, experiencing some repercussions for disclosing mental illness. It's interesting because sports psychologists have been around for years now. You know, I I think of a hockey goalie who might be struggling or just wants to stay mentally sharp. And, you know, some of the things that they're learning are some of the things that Simone Biles is now going to go through in terms of, you know, refocusing and and resetting. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we need to differentiate a little bit about, you know, there's there's performance-based Uh, sports psychology techniques, which is all about, you know, the refocusing and the strategies for emotional regulation and resetting and imagery, those types of things. But then, you know, when when there's a interweaving of perhaps some mental illness as well, it throws a whole other layer in there, which can impact performance. But, you know, Simone has alluded to 
treatment that she's had in medication that's been helpful for her. So I suspect it's beyond just performance with her as it is with um, some of the other athletes who've been coming forward. So we need to really pay attention to that, that it's not just always about performance, that sometimes it truly is about health and illness. I know you don't have all the details, but how would you handle a competitor like Simone Biles? How does she get back to a good place mentally and, and ultimately competitively? Well, I think the first step would really be validation, you know, um, and, and trying to limit how much social media exposure she's going to have because, you know, there's lots of trolls out there and, you know, you're never as good as they say, and you're never as bad as they say. So you want to limit how much of the external exposure she's going to be getting, but really validate how she's feeling, help her feel supported and uh, make sure she has access to all the supports she needs. Whether or not she competes here at the Tokyo Olympics is really irrelevant, truly um, in the big picture in terms of the health of this young lady. And, um, you know, first and foremost, I think they're going to really focus on that and, let the chips fall where they may in terms of gymnastics points and medals. But, um, you know, let's let's let her emerge from here, still feeling strong, still being proud of all of her accomplishments and, uh, you know, helping her recognize that the, the everything she's doing right now in terms of shining a light on mental health is actually going to be quite impactful, I think, going forward for all of the athletes who um, idolize her as a gymnast. She's obviously, uh, you know, one of the the, the best gymnasts uh, of all time. Uh, seems to be in a place where uh, she can get out of. Let's hope. Um, do you expect her to be back? She'll be back in whatever form works for her. You know, some people move on from sport but stay involved in sport and become advocates for a lot of different things. So, I think she needs some time to figure out, you know, what is going to fit for her life and her needs and where that falls in place going down the road. Um, you know, again, whether it's a place in sport is really irrelevant to the big picture, but it's really what works for her and, and her life going forward. She said yesterday, it, life is more than just gymnastics. And I think she's really arrived at that point now, and she's going to have to make some decisions for herself. We certainly wish her all the best. There's no doubt about it. I can't not ask you about the swimming uh, last night and, and obviously this week as the high performance mental health advisor for Swimming Canada as well as Cycling Canada. Um, <laughs> what the women and, and the guys too are, are achieving in the pool is absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. And uh, my, my job is custodian of the flag. I'm up there in the stands holding that flag and cheering. If you see any of the highlights, that's me up there. Uh, it's just electrifying and exhilarating, and we're all shaking after we watch those races. It is so close, and our our athletes are so dialed in, you know. And uh, again, today turned out some great performances, and the next few days are just going to be incredible. And then the cyclists get started next week, so watch for them. And then yeah, the you know the track athletes and the runners get started. So there's so much more excitement to come. It's just uh, this huge wave of energy, and Canada House is rocking. For you personally, going from Swimming Canada to Cycling Canada, the success you've had in the pool, can, can any of that translate, any of that momentum translate from one sport to another? Well, I think so. I think, you know, the athletes are different people and uh, it's quite interesting. You know, a lot of the cyclists have arrived at their sport from other sports previously. So some have been, you know, Kelsey Mitchell was a soccer player at the University of Calgary before becoming the world champion sprint cyclist um you know annie foreman Mackey was a swimmer at mcmaster before becoming a, a women's track endurance athlete and georgia simmerling has been a multiple olympian in different sports so uh i think that they're, they're a different type of athlete but nonetheless very tenacious and they train so incredibly hard all year long a little bit different in cycling in that they're able to train in different 
uh, areas around the world and then kind of come together for their competitions, whereas swimming is more um, high performance center based or, or group based. So a little bit of a different approach, but nonetheless, the, the nature, the core of the athlete is the same. The tenacity, the commitment, the dedication will translate, I do believe. We're only a few days into the Tokyo Games. It has been enthralling thus far, not only from a Canadian perspective, but certainly as an Olympic Games, it's been interesting to watch. Dr. Edwards, thanks for joining us today and enjoy the rest of the events. Will do. Thanks, Rick. Dr. Carla Edwards is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences with McMaster University in Hamilton, also a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada, and obviously absolutely overjoyed, over the moon, over the performances of the Canadian swimmers, men and women. Obviously, the, the women have had a lot more success in terms of medals, but what a journey it is to get to the Olympics And, you know, put yourself in Simone Biles' shoes. She gets to yet another Olympic Games, a highly decorated athlete, maybe maybe the most famous athlete at the Olympics when you think of, you know, her her superstardom, her standing within uh, the the gymnastics world, uh, such a likable individual. It is and was crushing to see that, uh, you know, her mental health is not where she wants it to be, and it's affecting her in her performances. Let's hope that she is back in some capacity and hopefully competing to uh, her expectations and at the highest levels as soon as she can. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Do employers have to worry about presenteeism? in the post-pandemic workplace. Now, historically, many employees have hesitated to stay home when sick, leading to presenteeism, working at half speed while sick, and putting others at risk. Has COVID-19 changed our attitudes towards coughs and sniffles around the water cooler? And, and what should employers do in this case? Dr. Matthias Spitzmuller is Professor of Organizational Behavior with the Smith School of Business at Queen's University and joins us now. Dr. Spitzmuller, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rich. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for coming on. Presenteeism, I would describe it as uh, people's work being affected by their health problems. Is, Is that an accurate description? Yeah, I think that's an accurate description. It's people coming to the office physically when they should rather stay at home and when they often put their fellow co-workers, supervisors at risk of being infected as well. And this is an issue that uh, we haven't talked too much about, I think, before the pandemic. And I think just in the last year, we have seen how much mindful practices can really make a change in terms of the contagion of illnesses and the uh, big question is, what is going to happen now that we are leaving the pandemic behind? Are we able to maintain safe workplace practices and not put others at risk um, coming to work sick? So in a post-pandemic world, I know we're not quite there yet, but you know there are signs we're getting there slowly but surely. How serious of a concern is presenteeism for employers? I think it has always been a very serious concern. I think we just haven't really recognized it as such. Um, We have very often had employees who are coming sick to the office because they feel that they're either indispensable or because they feel that they don't want to take the few sick days that they have, the few paid sick days, or because they feel that there is an expectation in the organization that they have to be there. And I think the root cause of the problem is oftentimes a dysfunctional workplace culture 
that equates excessive overwork with excellence. And oftentimes this attitude of I have to battle through, I have to be there, I have to be strong, that is what has made employees to come to work, even though they are not productive, they're putting others at risk, and they're also causing tremendous economic damage if other employees are also falling sick and um, cannot perform their work in the future as well. Is the pandemic changing people's mindsets or post-pandemic, are we going to see people just going back to work if they're not feeling 100%, if I can say it that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I really hope that the pandemic is also an opportunity for us to reflect on the way in which we have viewed sicknesses in the past. I think in the past, and we also know this as parents from children, we take them to daycare when they're sick because, well, who else looks after them? And uh, just a week after that, the entire daycare is down with the flu. And I think we have seen in the last year how mindful practices and uh, preventing exposure of yourself and others to sickness, how that can really make a difference. We haven't had a flu season this past winter precisely because of that. And so I really hope that some of those good workplace practices, um, washing hands, maybe wearing a mask, but most importantly, not coming to work when you're sick, that they will also persist in a post-pandemic world. Our guest is Dr. Matthias Spitzmuller. He is the Professor of Organizational Behavior with the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. We can safely say that presenteeism has gone digital as well. People are working longer than ever from home, responding to emails during what should be, you know, quote-unquote off hours. This is going to be an interesting development when more and more people return to the physical work place. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, many organizations are planning that return to the physical workplace. I think we are seeing uh, many employees who will also feel the expectation again of their um, fellow employees, of their employers to return to work. And uh, I think very important, I think, are those first months. What does an organizational organization signal to employees what is acceptable? It's very important, I think, that senior leaders in the organization emphasize that we don't just want to go back to the same behaviors that we practiced prior to the pandemic. Let's have a change and let's really take our illnesses, also mental health, by the way, much more seriously than we have in the past. It almost sounds like, and I'm sure most employers will do this, have some sort of uh, you know, handbook or policy to state that, you know, here are the new rules post-pandemic. If, if you're not feeling well for whatever reason, just don't come into work. Right. And this is, I think, really where the problem starts. Because a handbook, as we all know, a handbook is not enough really to change behavior. And I think only those organizations that really understand that this is fundamentally a cultural issue that this is about what I mentioned before, like equating excessive overwork and battling through illness, equating this with excellence and stop rewarding this type of behavior. I think this is really where it starts. And a handbook might create a change for a few months, but the organizations that really want to see lasting change, they have to recognize, I think, that this is a cultural issue. We've also seen this at the Smith School. In the past, we've always had students, our new MBA students, we took them out in February to Brockville, and then for 36 hours, we, they were basically sleep-deprived, and they were engaging in physical team-building activities. And the students usually liked it, but the problem is that 
he taught them that um, working excessive hours and battling through feelings of, uh, well, just not being unwell are expected and rewarded in the program. And we changed that. And I think other organizations also have to learn that the team building activities, the norms that you're creating in the workplace, they are ultimately what, um, what lead to presenteeism. And that's really where we have to start, I think, to lead to a, a lasting change in behavior. That example that you gave, was that a, uh, a quick change in our behavior or in the behavior that were involved in that exercise? Or was that a gradual shift to where they are now? So I think most organizations have gradually shifted towards um, a less toxic work environment that also creates, I think, healthier expectations for employees. But the pandemic, I think, provides such a tremendous opportunity right now because this has been a milestone for all of us, such a, such a key experience the past year where we're really reflecting on what is right and what is wrong in our lives and how do we perform work. And I think this is such a, such a great opportunity to also change this culture of, of presenteeism that we've had in so many organizations, not only in Canada, but around the world. Data from a recent survey in the UK showed that 80% of workers said presenteeism existed in their workplace. A quarter of the respondents said it had gotten worse in the last year. That's a lot of workers. We're talking 80% uh, of respondents saying that, yeah, it's not only a factor, but it's getting even worse. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned just the, the number of um, workers. So think of the economic damage that this has. There's very few academic research that has investigated how expensive is this for organizations. But if you're just looking at the sick days, if um, other employees um, uh, fall sick, you're talking about billions of dollars for the Canadian economy every year. And it's really time we start to take this more seriously. So where do we go from here? I think um, organizational leaders, I think they really have a, a key role because their own behavior signals to employees what is expected and what is rewarded. If you have a senior manager who calls in the day before an important presentation and says, not feeling well, could employee X or Y um, take my spot? I think that goes a long way to demonstrate that it's acceptable. Something else that we have been doing at the Smith School in our area group in organizational behavior we have talked to each other proactively. Who could teach my lecture when I'm sick this winter semester? Hmm. Who could um, fill in for me? And then the night before a lecture, when you're sick, you know that there's a plan in place already that you can activate as opposed to having to scramble and call colleagues and you feel bad for that. And in the end, you still show up sick and in the end, you might have a classroom where you might infect 20, 30 other students in the, in the process. So I think it's those little changes like proactively thinking about what can you tweak so that there's less of an expectation to come to work. I also believe organizations should um, expand the, uh, the sick days, which they offer, and also the paid sick days. If you've got two paid sick days a year and an employee falls sick in February, what are the odds that this employee is taking those two days? Because you know that you might need them later in the year. And so there are really incentives right now that also have employees come to work, and it's important to override them. And in the end, I think organizations will also benefit economically from that, because if you have got sick employees not coming to work and others not falling sick because of that, the entire workplace benefits and the 
there will also be positive financial consequences as well. So not only does that change have to start from uh, someone in a, a senior role, whether it's, you know, a CEO or a president or a manager, you know, quote unquote, your boss, not only that, but we need supports for individuals to follow suit and not, quote unquote, you know, feel bad by taking a day or two. Yes, absolutely. And so it starts, you mentioned not feeling bad. and This is really critical. So this expectation that it is okay not to be okay for some time. And as I mentioned, this includes physical health, but also mental health. And we've seen a big change also with our students at the Smith School. Just uh, two, three years ago, there were suddenly students who said, we want to um, create a mental health student association here at the school that really talks about this toxic cycle of um, performance expectations and physical or mental illness that can come from that. And let's get to the root cause of that. And I think initiatives like that, they really go a long way to also lead to a lasting behavioral change that we hope to see in organizations and universities for that matter. It's a very interesting discussion. Dr. Spitzmuller, thank you very much for the insight today and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks for having me. Dr. Matthias Spitzmuller is a professor of organizational behavior with the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. We've been talking about a presenteeism in the post-pandemic workplace. It's obviously, well, it's been a factor for, for many years now. Basically, you know, you're not feeling well but you are you know, forcing yourself to go to work because, well, for a variety of reasons. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want your manager or your boss or your superior or even your colleagues to think less of you because you're staying home and you are uh, you know, letting down the team, so to speak. we got to change that attitude, especially uh, you know, during and post-pandemic. A, a survey in Britain found that 54% of British workers felt obliged to personally and physically come into the office at some point during the pandemic, especially those in the early to mid-career standpoint, if you will. And that's despite a rise in, you know, the, the, the new reality that we're living in now, that flexible kind of workspace, working from home, working remotely, not having to come into the office. More than half of those in the survey said they felt obliged to come in during the pandemic to do, you know, whatever the task was or the project was. That's a high number, especially in a global pandemic. Wow. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.